Victor Adair and I talk regularly about what we're trading. What we're trading is central bank policy. This week was no exception. You saw the bank, uh, central bank in China lower interest rates. You ready for the sixth time in less than a year? Sixth time in less than a year. There's a message there. We also saw the European Central Bank head Mario Draghi talk about hey, possible more quantitative easing, more easy money policies as we come into December. Well, Dr. Michael Berry has presented several times and consulted with the Federal Reserve as he's presented to them and uh, lent him lent that group his advice. He joins me on the line now. Fortuitous time to have him. Uh, Dr. Berry, thanks for finding time for us. Really much appreciated. It's great to be back, Mike. Uh, let's just start with you presented, uh, you know, about a month ago to the Federal Reserve once again. What was your message? Well, the message was that the world is slowing and that inflation everywhere is declining in spite of the fed wanting its two percent interest rate you cannot raise interest rates in fact because almost every other country has uh taken its currency down relative to the dollar the dollars become the u.s dollars become much stronger and that has in itself tightened the u.s economy so you know there's just no way there's going to be i i basically said to them you're not going to raise rates Raising rates will slow the economy further. You need growth here. So, mm-hmm. And, of course, they didn't raise rates, and they look confused right now. And, of course, Mike, the problem is it's the wrong model. It's like putting gasoline on a fire to extinguish it. It's just the wrong model that the Fed has in place now. Well, speaking of that, we just got our numbers in Canada, uh, you know, for inflation in September. It was 1%, you know, and as, as we both appreciate, uh, that that sounds good to some countries at this point. But uh, the point you're making is, is obviously very important for investors around the world, and that is whether the Fed can raise rates or not. And as you say, they, they feel confused because I would suspect they want to. I mean, they want to normalize rates, but it doesn't look like that's possible. I mean, it's a serial disappointment when we look at uh, economic growth. Virtually every revision seems to be downward around the world. It, it is. Um, even in India, where the inflation rate was 7.6, the inflation rate is now 3.7. And industries, industrial companies in leaders in India are saying, you got to lower, we got to lower rates. Mm-hmm. Brazil may be the only counterexample to this issue of deflation and deflation is the biggest worry of the fed because it's simply it's not the obverse of inflation it's quite a different phenomenon we have excess supply in the world now we have to work that off we have excess debt that's been pushed out into the world we have a lot of money that's sitting on the sidelines we have a bubble in the stock market so raising rates to normalize or lift off or whatever they wanted to call it here is virtually impossible and i doubt very much if they'll do it uh, next year they won't do it this year there's no chance of that well the other you know implication of that or ramification for that is what the impact is on pensions you know i mean so many pensions uh it's mandatory for them to carry a certain degree of uh government bonds fixed income etc well that part of their portfolio is obviously non-performing you know they have to make six or seven percent in their pension funds to be able to meet their obligations going forward well now they're getting say two two and a quarter or something in a 10-year government bond uh you know these these record low rates are going to have implications as we go through unfunded liabilities are increasing quite dramatically at least here and secondly any of um of the older crew you know of the uh um you know people above 50 that have been investing in bonds, I mean, literally, they're not earning anything. What we learned here in the U.S. recently 
is that Medicare, Medicare costs are going up. Medicare insurance is going up here for all of us, and there's a lot of people above 60 here, and there's no increase in Social Security this year. So there, this is a, it's a serious time here. It's a serious time in the U.S. And last week I presented in Quebec, and I looked at their natural resource industry in the context of what I see the Fed doing in the states, and they've asked me to come back and talk to the legislature in January about what do you do when you're in when you're a natural resource economy and you and you have this kind of world floating around you. It's a very difficult situation indeed. They better ask you to show up in Alberta. We just got their budgetary uh, estimates coming in around a $6 billion deficit. And I keep telling people, this reminds you how fast things can change. And, uh, you know, you go from surplus to a $6 billion deficit as oil drops from 107 in June of 2014 to its current 45. I still think oil's going lower. What's your take on oil? I think in the near term it certainly can go lower because nobody's blinked yet. And even in the U.S., Yes, the shale, the shale productiv- pro- um, uh, product is starting to come off, but um, they're swing producers now. They can drill you know, shale wells and bring them back online very quickly. So you know, that's hanging over the situation, uh, to say the least, in, in the States. So I do think it'll go lower. I was a money manager in 1999. Oil went to $10, so I tell people, don't confuse value with price. Price can go anywhere. Yeah. I do think longer term we should we'll have sixty or seventy dollar oil. Whether that helps the oil sands new development, um, I don't know. It, you know, it, it, it's still a big issue. And a lot of people thought when oil came off uh, last uh, November, as it did, wow, this will really you know people will earn more and they'll spend. And they're not spending here in the states, even though we have gas at a dollar ninety five a, a three point eight liter gallon. Um, it, they're they're saving it. So that's a clear indication of a disinflationary or a deflationary uh, environment. And, and that really worries central bankers. And as well, again, I say they don't have a tool ready to do it. So maybe Monsieur Trudeau will have some, some options. And in this country, uh, perhaps Donald Trump will, if that turns out to be the case. I don't know. I'm just, it, it's a, a very difficult problem. And it's, it's got, there's a lot of debt in the system. Canada's not delevering, and the U.S. is not delevering. They're levering up still. So it's going to be three or four years before we get organic growth that pulls us out of this thing. I think that's the key. We've just come through an election campaign here, uh, 78 days of misleading statements on the economy, how it happens, superficiality. So you'll have to forgive the Canadian public for being uh, harangued. Uh, and, of course, uh, the level of sophistication in some parts is is such that they don't understand this is the fundamentals. Uh, I'd made a comment earlier uh Michael, that uh, the way we heard it talked about in the media was we were electing not a prime minister, but God in the suggestion that they could control the economy. And it's the factors that you're alluding to are playing a far more prominent role. And I want to bring one of those factors to, to bear here, and that's China. I mean, China looks to me like it's ready to export deflation to the rest of the world. Uh, I don't believe it's growth numbers and clearly having a major impact on the price of resources. Absolutely. Uh, as, as you pointed out, China is reducing rates just like everyone else is, uh, except, of course, in this country where they want to increase rates. And they are, they are, they are, we are importing deflation in this country, in the United States for sure, with respect to, to the dollar. And um, 
I, no, nobody believes their numbers. Their numbers are, 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 are false. And, you know, maybe they're growing at 3%, maybe they're growing at 4%, but it's not sustainable and it's not organic growth. It's, 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 you know, fake growth, basically. So that's a problem. We just had a big seminar on emerging markets here. And Canada is certainly not an emerging country, but it is a natural resource country. And what you see now is in Brazil and, and the countries that are natural resource-based, they're producing everything they can in terms of the commodity sector so that they can continue to pay down their debt, which is mm-hmm. a lot of it's in U.S. dollars, and their dollars, their currency is, is smaller now. So it's a real problem. We have excess supply. Uh, we've seen in, in the big companies, we've seen CEOs being replaced. Um, it, you know, we can talk about Trafagura and a number of other of the big companies here that are they're selling everything they can sell now to try and reduce their balance sheet. So um, it, it's, if you looked at a leading indicator, you'd have to look at the commodity industry. It has had four major declines since 2011, and the last two declines in the last year and a half have been very sharp declines. And that includes both soft and hard commodities. So I look at that as sort of the leading indicator of what's happening in the world today. And, and I hope it's my message here, uh, and I, I completely agree with what you're saying, and I think it's such an important one, is that's the context. I, I can tell you right now, Canadians in general, and obviously it's a generalization, but Canadians are not taking the economic environment that we're operating in seriously. Uh, clearly, we didn't in the federal election, uh, but that's to be expected. Uh, but this is a very serious time globally. I'm talking with Dr. Michael Berry, Discovery, uh, Disruptive Discoveries Journal. I'll give you where to check that out in just a moment's time. But I'll come back. I'm going to go through the economies. We just alluded to uh, the price of oil. Let's look at that commodity sector. The Bank of Canada made it very clear in their statement uh, this past week when they kept rates where they were that that's still the weak part of the Canadian economy, not just oil but resources in general. Other parts of the economy are growing, albeit slowly. Consumer spending is up, as Dr. Michael Berry just alluded to, but a lot of that's been borrowed. But, of course, wealth has also gone up, thankfully, in the price of a home. But, again, the resource sector seems to hold the key, as well as uh, the U.S. uh, strength in their economy to buy our exports. So all of that's on the table right now. With Dr. Michael Berry, we'll come back, get his take on it all on the Chorus Radio Network. Dr. Michael Berry is my guest. Very pleased to have him with us. Uh, just alluded to earlier that he had presented to the Federal Reserve recently, but he also has been doing so much work on uh, commodities and pricing, etc. And I want to start there. Uh, let me just ask that, that sort of big picture question, Dr. Berry, and that is, is that commodity super cycle that sort of started to gain momentum, pick a number, 2002, is that over? Yes. Okay. <laughs> In a word. <laughs> over because during that time we had a great party and a lot of people got you know and got a little drunk and a lot of capacity came on you know at one point iron ore was at i think 19 dollars and it went to 129 dollars and mm-hmm. com- big companies with great boards of directors like bhp and rtz and so on decided that they would fight it out for share and they they spent billions of dollars and that is excess uh, capacity now and that excess capacity is going to have to be worked off or sold. And if it's sold, it'll be sold at a discount. So we have a three- to five-year window here where hopefully we can get some escape velocity growth in the world economy by that time and begin to work off the excess supply 
and excess supply is actually the good part of deflation. So, yes, it is over with, and I don't think we'll see another one like it. I do think we'll see growth, but it, in, in the period from 2000 to 2006, if you drilled a hole and got anything in it, your stock went up. That is not the case today. Today, we're selling assets at a big discount. So, so that commodity super cycle that we experienced is over. It will come again at some point, but it's down the road now. Uh, you alluded to this earlier, but I, I want to just reemphasize it because uh, I think it's an important point. Uh, and it uh, comes to what you're just saying here, and that is when oil does recover, we could pick a bottom, and you know we have people saying as low as $10, $20, $30, whatever. I think the next level has to test that 2008 low myself at uh, December, which was about $32 to $34, December of 2008. But here's the point. The recovery will not bring it back. It's not a V bottom that brings it back to that $100 level. As Dr. Barry said earlier, if you missed it, he's talking about a $60 kind of price range in there. And I think that's important change in the environment. But it begs this question. You know, we have a lot of people on one side saying this was just a cyclical downturn. And what what we're suggesting here in this deflation is it's broader than that. There's not sort of V bottoms just awaiting us here back to the good old days, at least at some point, that this is a a much more structural shift. This is indeed. This is a Larry Summers, Dr. Larry Summers shift. Summers and Bernanke have got this big battle going on. Bernanke saying these are all temporary headwinds that we'll work off. But we've been 82 months in the United States with zero interest rate. In other words, the Fed funds rate it's just one-eighth of one percent, and the average is 5.5 percent. And so, so we've had 82 months of declining velocity of money and 82 months of the multiplier being well below 1.0, the money multiplier, so the banking system isn't cranking out loans like it should. 82 months is the longest time in the history, in recorded history, except for the Great Depression. So, yes, this, this is a very different structural situation, and if, if Congress in the United States, and I, I presume Parliament in Canada, and the provinces don't get off the stick, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take a lot longer than it should. And right now, they're just pushing things down the road. Well, I also don't see them. I, I don't. I absolutely have. And I'm not trying to be, you know, that sort of clever, cynical, that you know, sort of popular about knocking politicians. I have no sense, though, that any leader has a clue of this global environment and the implications. And I think, you know, nobody sat back in Europe and said, "Hey, I've got a good way of just collapsing the welfare state." They are not on top of this. China is not on top of this. As I say, we had a federal election that suggested that somehow we were going to elect somebody to manage this. Yeah, they have a role to play, but I think we're we're delusional, actually, on this. And we're not near desperate enough to see the broader environment that we're operating in right now. And it takes some expertise. Uh, I want to come still and uh, stay with that uh, commodity thing there. Okay, so let's say we're still battling it out. We've still got a lot of supply to work through and the production that's going on, etc. When we come out of it, and we could pick a date, say three, five years out, do you have like an order of commodities that you think might come out of this sooner than others? Yes, I do, actually. And, uh, when, I, when I presented for the Quebec Exploration Society, we, we talked about these things. I, I do think that in the short term, we could see some strength in some commodities, like I think lithium's probably at the top of the list, simply because there's so much hype about lithium-ion batteries and about Tesla and where they're used, and battery technology is coming up. So I think lithium is 
sort of at the top of my list. I think copper's near the top of my list because it's maintained a bottom of about 230. And if you look at Freeport MacMoran as an example, they can produce, they're, they're profitable at, a, you know, uh, at, at easily profitable at, at, at 230 copper. I think cobalt is a good one. I think oil will, will go down, I agree with you, Mike, to maybe $30. It could go lower, but it will come back to 60 or 70 simply because the Saudis have got to have 60 or 70 or $80 oil. And really that whole play was about getting at the Russians and the Iranians. They miscalculated what they could do with the respect to shale oil. The shale guys will go offline and come back online when, when the price goes back up to 60 So I think oil's there. And silver is a very, very tight market. And what we're seeing now, and I'm heavily involved with it in Mexico, is the mid-tier, mid-cap Canadian silver producers are shutting down mines. Uh, Pan Am will lose a mine in, um, in Sonora next year. A 5 million ounce mine will be mined out. Um, and others have, are basically saying we're going to focus on profitability and not production. So prices will start to firm up there. As long as the U.S. dollar keeps uh, much stronger, then there'll be a, a lid on the price of gold and, um, and silver. I don't like graphite in the short term. I don't like zinc in the short term. And I think uranium may be a fuel of the past, even though it is a vitally important uh, commodity to, uh, to Canadians, to Saskatchewan and so on. Uh, just, so I just... like lithium and copper and cobalt and sort of in that order. And um, in my presentation in Quebec, I explained in, in, in a lot more detail why. But um, what I also, you know, what, what what I also said to the people in Quebec was, you've got to start working on your supply chain strategy. You've got to move from mining exploration and development up to supply chain to bring technology, and that's how we'll develop your economies a little more forcefully. And so. Well, as usual, time is always too short, but I've really, I've got to thank you so much. This is absolutely fascinating with Dr. Michael Berry. Find him at discoverycapital.com. Uh, thanks so much, Dr. Berry. My pleasure, Mike. Thank you again. Great stuff as usual. Take a break. Come back. Shocking stat, Aussie Jurek and a great goofy with Victor Adair. I've got a double-edged goofy award for you today. Uh, one part of it, though is the absolute most disappointing aspect from the media in this past federal election. And I'm not, uh, wait till you hear it. I just think it was way over the line on one aspect of it. You, you know, people like to see the media support a particular point of view that they like, all of that stuff. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about something far worse. I'll share that with you before we're done today. Plus, New York Times published an article that was just outright stupid when it came to what's been happening in Canada economically by one of the best-known, maybe its best-known writer, Paul Krugman. I'll share that with you also. Coming up, Victor Dare. Time now for this week's shocking stat of the week. There's a lot of things we could do here. I want to just point out, first of all, that we've been saying on Money Talks and on the blog if you subscribe to our paid blog on uh, moneytalks.net, to be in a cash position, to talk about cash. Victor Dares talked about that. Uh, because, first of all, you're seeing rolling corrections, whether it's in commodities where you're down 50 to 60% in those stocks, but biotechs have joined the party, 3D printers off far more than that. The list is a long one. But global equity losses were $11 trillion in the third quarter of 2015. 
$11 trillion. The only sector up globally was the utility sector, as again, they prepped for more lower rates. Uh, I think that's key. But here's my shocking stat of the week. We've been talking a lot about, if you have to understand, is where is money moving? So, for example, the Canadian dollar has a major fall against the U.S. Well, a significant part of that was because money is flowing into the U.S. The U.S. is the first choice for capital when things become uncertain. That's why I still see a lot of uncertainty on the horizon, spelling higher levels for the U.S. dollar. Well, we got one number that certainly verified this week, and I sat there. It was a jaw-dropper. In the first eight months of this year, $500 billion left China for other parts. You want to know the impact? I know if you're listening today out in Vancouver, you suspect there's been a pretty strong impact on the three million plus uh, housing market there in the residential scene, but it's everywhere. You've seen it in Sydney, in Melbourne. You're seeing it uh, in the high end in New York, 10 million plus. You've certainly seen it in London, and it's not just uh, China. It's other areas where there's geopolitical uncertainty, but that number comes just from China. You think their economy is having trouble? Well, it sure doesn't help when $500 billion leaves that country in the first eight months of this year. That's why, by the way, the authorities are scared to death. They've got 25-year lows in growth. And that's why China's central bank cut interest rates on Friday for the sixth time in less than a year. It also lowered the amount of cash that banks had to hold in reserve. They're trying to, again, encourage them to lend more money that's there in an effort to stimulate their economy. This is big stuff happening. Uh, My thing in the election wasn't about which party you wanted. It was that they didn't discuss these major issues, is that we had this sort of delusion that somehow Canada is not involved in this overall economic uh, context, and somehow a new prime minister, an old prime minister, whoever you voted for, Uh, could change this. We desperately need three levels of government to get together and stop the anti-growth policies that are so prominent and so evident in this country. You better be careful because I'm telling you, the other side of this does not look pretty. If your goal is to protect government services, if your goal is to help charitable donations, if you're worried about the unemployed, there is only one way to take care of that, and it's not government intervention, it's economic growth. And yet we have at the provincial and the municipal level governments working aggressively against that. And the record will see what Mr. Trudeau does as the new prime minister. But I tell you, it comes within this context. Look what it's done to the oil market. It was ridiculous during the campaign to see opposition parties somehow miraculously blaming the conservative government for the fallout from the decline in oil. Just like it is not Rachel Notley's fault in in Alberta for the fallout. What they do about it, yeah, that's what they're responsible for and the impact it'll have. But I'll tell you, we better start getting realistic about this. I'll take a break. I'll come back. Speaking of the new government, what impact will it have on real estate? Well, Aussie Jerk's going to join me with that. Plus, don't forget, stay tuned for my Goofy. A double-edged Goofy award coming up for you. Victor Adair live from the trading desk. Right now, Aussie Jurek joins me on the line. We have a new government in Ottawa. Obviously, they've just been making promises. It's not time yet for what actual policies get implemented. But the real estate industry is having a long look at this. Uh, although, Aussie Jurek, as I say, is on the line. Aussie, as I say, 
some of the stuff they're not going to impact. I don't think they control interest rates. I don't think they control, I just gave a stat, how much money is coming internationally into our country, especially into specific regions like Vancouver and Toronto. But they will have some impact uh, on other areas. Yeah, there's no question. And I think we're sort of entering maybe a new area of more government spending, higher deficits, and and maybe more restrictive environmental regime. But for real estate in specific, um, we we will have an easier time maybe on the RSP funds that we can use maybe for home buying. It's not clear exactly what is allowed, but even secondary home purchases out of the RSP might be possible, whereas today all you can do is use it for mortgages. Uh, to invest in. But uh, you're also true to say that they might have more flexible programs for first-time buyers. We don't know what that means. It might be the old AHOP where there's a, a down payment subsidy. And uh, then you look at uh, the, the, the likes transits or they're big on transits or maybe the SkyTrain expansion will go ahead now, maybe the UBC line or in Surrey and the Fraser Valley. And then more government office space, you know, deficit financing is a cornerstone uh, of the new government, I think, which will translate in more public employees and increase in office space demand, which should help developers. Sounds and like then, hell to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let, let me come back. Don't go on. Let me just come back to a couple of yeah. those things uh, yeah. uh, when you talk about them. Uh, you know, the, the RSP, if they made a change there, would be of interest to people. They have cash there. Uh, right now you can do for your home buying, but as you say, it may extend to secondary homes, which I think uh, will be uh, of, of interest. Yeah, well, actually, you can only use the RSP by law now if you invest it in mortgages or in a mortgage management fund. You're not allowed to invest it directly in the real estate, but you can grant yourself a mortgage on your own home. What I understand the new government having said in the in the campaign is that now the RSP funds allow you to buy actually the the, the home with the money. That would be a major news news major change. Well, I'd love to see if they're worried about uh, first-time home buyers. Maybe they could restrict the amount of development fees that municipalities put on that add tens of thousands of dollars to the cost of a new home. Talk about a subject that gets avoided conveniently for government. But uh, we always talk about first-time home buyers, and we forget that aspect of it. That it's uh, unbelievable. The you know the developer usually doesn't even make as much money as the government does off of those things. So yeah, I know we did a program on it. I think. A few months ago where the percentage that the local governments and the governments at all take on all levels of, of taxes, whether it's property transfer taxes and so on, is astounding. I think we're one of the only countries in the world that is that bad. But the interesting And it's also risk free. Sorry, Ozzy, to interrupt, yeah. but it's also risk free. The developer at least is taking risk and we've gone through periods of time in this country where developers have taken a huge hit. Some have gone bankrupt, etc. Oh no, there's no such risk for government. It's all just gravy. So if Mr. Yeah. Trudeau's serious, he might want to have a look at what's going on at the municipal and provincial levels. Well, you you know yourself it's never gonna happen. But I <laughs> yeah, there you go. The developers, you know, deserve you know, I mean after years of wrangling with the city and and public hearings and whatnot, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a well-deserved uh, return that they're getting. Mm-hmm. But one of the more interesting things is, is legalizing marijuana. I mean, you know, I, I, I put all the Trudeau stuff in my weekly facts, and, and in order to find out what that might mean, we took a look at Denver. And it had an impact in Denver on industrial and retail real estate. In fact, almost 3% of sort of C-class industrial space is now taken up by the new marijuana growers. So there may be, um, and if it's, if it's federally legal, we, we may even see more than that, because in the U.S. federally, it's still not legal. It's, it's a state-by-state uh, marijuana thing. 
But uh, so that might have some real estate impact for for industrial uh, users. And then, of course, there is they they said they're not going to like the pipeline, the northern pipeline. How it's going to shake out, we'll have to see. But that would have an impact on BC, much less less than Alberta, because they have eastern and southern pipeline options. Well, it's going to be interesting, and as I say, there's a list of things that they've put forward. We'll see which ones get implemented there. And uh, interesting about the marijuana one that you've just alluded to, it just shows how a policy there can have ripple effects into other parts of the economy. As you say, in this case, it was classy commercial real estate. Do you have a hot property for us? Yeah, I'm in uh, Grand Prairies right now in, in northern Alberta. And by the way, there was a group here that uh, that is, was almost 77% voted against the, the new, new new government. So don't get them going. But the interesting thing is this city here in the north is uh, fourth, four, rated fourth most entrepreneurial. It's the second most in Canada, a city under 150,000. There's a 2.1% uh, vacancy rate. There's double the national wealth per household, and the average income is over 100,000. Yet the average price is only 320,000. And my hot property of the week is a, a condo with a loft at 65,000 that's rented at $1,000. By any measure, that's a good investment. And I even found a single-family home for 129.9. So it's northern Alberta. It's a, a, a hop and a skip from Dawson Creek. And uh, the city will also benefit from the, the building going on in the Site C Dam and Port St. John and so on. So interesting, interesting. Place to be. Yeah, well, enjoy your vacation. Just kidding. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Ozzy, thanks for taking the time. i got to take a break. i got Victor Adair on deck. i got a goofy award. Stay with us. Thank you, Mike. Let's be blunt. We're in a business where being right is the important thing. On this show, what we look at is the big picture that is driving events. Our themes have been very straightforward. Weak commodities, strong U.S. dollar uh, implications of this record low interest rates. Uh, We've been big on buying high-quality yield stocks. All of that has proven to be correct. I don't know another uh, uh, show in the media. I don't know anyone else in the media who has been talking consistently about the deflationary pressures and the implications, and I am proud of the fact that we have done exactly that. Victor Dare joins me on the line. He has profited greatly from understanding those trends. Victor, you must have been music to your ears hearing Dr. Michael Berry. Yeah, it was, Mike. Uh, I've known uh, Mike Berry for probably 15 years. We've been on a number of uh, panels together and had uh, had some speakers dinner together where we had a little wine and kind of kicked it around. I, I really like Mike, and I very much agreed with uh, everything he had to say. Well, and again, it plays into the theme. You know, last week you were talking about you had re-entered the market you're on your trading account. Your investment account hadn't changed. You still had U.S. dollars, uh, but your trading account, you decided to play the Canadian dollar, uh, oil, and gold all to go down, and that's consistent with the broad trend. So I take it you, you've concluded that those trends are still in play. Uh, yes, I am. I mean, I, I also added uh, this past week on Monday to my short positions in Canada and in crude. Um, the, my view, as I think I explained last week, was we've had a four-year downtrend in commodities, while at the same time, not surprisingly, we've had a four-year uptrend in the U.S. dollar. These are opposite sides of the same coin. But in any bear market, you will have what we call bear market rallies, where prices will rally sharply. And uh, for any number of reasons, and one of them certainly is that people love to buy something when it's 50% off. That doesn't necessarily mean it's going to go back up. I mean, 
think Nortel, think BlackBerry, that sort of thing. But people do, and we've been seeing that in the commodity sector here going back a month or two. Uh, there's been a big increase in spec long positions in gold. People have been t- trying to pick the bottom in crude oil here for a year. And by the way, when I mention crude oil, something that you don't see because crude oil takes the limelight, but natural gas prices have actually fallen more mm-hmm. than crude oil in the last year, you know, which makes it that much tougher for the government to you know, look for the royalties there. Anyway, Mike, uh, yes. We've had a bear market rally. I kind of was on the sidelines for, for that period of time. I've got back into thinking that this four-year downtrend in commodities has further to go. The uptrend in the U.S. dollar is further to go. And again, by the way, Thursday and Friday just passed here. We had the best two-day gain in the U.S. dollar against other currencies in four years. Uh, let me just very quickly, we only got about a minute left, but I want to come to stocks very quickly here. Uh, you know, just a quick take on it. Uh, the stock market has rallied off of the, you know, that very deep low we got into, a very sharp sell-off, I should say, uh, Black Monday, August 24th. We've had another rally here over the last uh, three weeks or so, exacerbated the past couple of days as the European Central Bank basically promised they're going to send a flood of money into the market. The Chinese are trying to stimulate their economy, and believe me, in the next week or two, you're going to hear more of that same sort of thing from Japan. We are trading the anticipation of central bank policy. If they're going to be easier, that's a positive for the stock market. But I'm inclined to think that we're not going to make new highs this year in the stock market. I'd be looking for this market to roll over. If it does, and only then, I'm going to look at taking short positions in the stock market. Uh, again, just as you've been saying all along, Victor, we're trading central bank policy. Well, they entered the market, as you say, again, both in Europe, both in China, and it had the upward move in the in the uh, sorry the stock markets there. But it is fascinating to see how dominant and prominent central bank action is, and that's what we're really trading here. Many thanks, Vic. I hope you have a terrific weekend. Thanks, Mike. You too. Victor Adair, my thanks to Victor, of course. My thanks also to Ozzy Jurek, to Mike, uh, Dr. Michael Berry, and to Michael Levy. Money Talks is brought to you by Solera Club. Solera Club uh, is in that tech sector. It's royalty-based, though, which means uh, you get paid first, and there's no fees attached to it. So if you want more information, go to soleraclub.com. Time now for this week's Goofy Award. Paul Krugman won the Nobel Prize for Economics, but has since transformed himself into a political hack, writing a prominent column for the New York Times. In doing so, I think he's giving economists a bad name because it's so politicized. That's not what economics should be. He's incredibly selective with his facts. I think he's written the column before he's got the facts, and he's rewriting history to suit his political agenda. Latest example was on Friday, and it was picked up by numerous news organizations in Canada because he wrote that Justin Trudeau's victory was a repudiation of austerity and the conservative government's approach. Well, if you know history... That is a completely false characterization. In 2009, in the aftermath of the credit crisis, the Conservatives introduced a $35 billion stimulus package. It might have been $36 billion, whatever. The bottom line being, that's exactly what the Keynesians 
would love to see happen, and they did it. Now, that was on top of what individual provinces were already doing. If you're listening today from British Columbia, you might recognize that time period, 2008, 2009. There was massive stimulus going on because you were hosting the Vancouver Olympics. Uh, So there was a new Sea to Sky Highway, a trade and convention center. All of that had been going on for the last few years. But there was a $35 billion stimulus package at the federal level. Government spending rose in every year. Uh, resources, oil, consumer spending, residential real estate all started to pick up after mid-2009, before, by the way, any of the infrastructure uh, programs were up and running on the national level. But to suggest, as Krugman does, due to his ideological blindness, that the conservative government didn't act to stimulate the economy in order to avoid being in deficit is a complete fabrication. They were in deficit until this year. And that continues, as I say, one, just one more reason why the reputation of the New York Times continues to deteriorate. Here's the most depressing part about the election for me, speaking of media reputations. The low light was the actions of the Canadian Media Guild. That union represents 6,000 journalists, including reporters from CBC and the Canadian Press. Did you know this? That union registered as an official third-party participant. Their goal was to defeat the Conservative government replace them with the Liberals, who had promised $150 million new spending for the CBC. But talk about a perception of bias. The union put their members in an absolute no-win situation as a journalist, jeopardizing any perception of objectivity. I think that action was way over the line and did a disservice to journalists everywhere. That's the Canadian Media Guild, that union representing 6,000 journalists, registering as an anti-conservative third party, basically. As I say, way over the line. That's all the time we have. Hey, go to moneytalks.net. You can listen to the program again, hear what Dr. Michael Berry, hear the weekly business comment, all of that on moneytalks.net. Thanks for listening.